Hey y'all, welcome. Welcome to REF. My name is Simon Stokes. I'm the REF campus minister here. And if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you and find out any way that we can serve you all. Um, this is a community of people that believe that God has loved us, um, that we need Him. If there's any way that we can turn around and give that love uh, to you, if you connect with community, um, please, please, please let us know. Sign up for a community group. Um, ask to meet with me or Aaron or Taylor. We're here for you, uh, and we're glad to serve you in any way that we can. And I want to say, especially if you're here and you're new with us, uh, thank you for coming. Um, I know we've bombarded you all with a lot of announcements tonight. It's the first REF this uh, semester. We're excited about that. Uh, Normally, we don't do so many announcements, but we've got a lot of things we're kind of kicking off here at the start of the semester. Um, But thanks uh, for being here with us. And again, if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know. I'm, going to, I'm starting tonight a short kind of three-week series on the topic of community. I, I'm doing that because I realize like community is a huge part of what we want at school. It's a huge part of what RUF is about. And I just I thought it'd be helpful as we start things off just to kind of sit and drill down a little bit into that topic. And so I'm just doing a short three-week series on community, and then we're going to do a short series on the book of Acts um, for the rest of the semester uh, but tonight we're in Philippians chapter 2. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a Greek um, city named Philippi, and that's literally all you need to know about it for tonight's sermon. Uh, but this is uh, God's Word, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we do pray that you would give to us now from your fullness, Lord, that we would receive through your Son Jesus your grace and your truth. Lord, let us see you and know you, And deal with you really through Jesus and through your word. Lord, uh, there are so many people here. um, So many different types of people who are here. Some people who are very hurt. Some people who um, are bumping through life and don't know where they're going. And are very afraid of that. There are some people who really want to know how to serve you and follow you. Lord, I pray that for all those types of people that you'd meet us tonight. With your grace and your truth. With the person and the power of your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to suggest something to you all tonight, and it's this. That consciously or unconsciously, all of us live in a story. That stories are the way that we deal with life and make sense of our lives. When you came to UNC, you came taking on a certain story. Of who is right and who is wrong. Of what's worthy or unworthy of your time and your attention of who's in and who's out, of how to live, act, think, feel, of who to cheer for when March Madness rolls around. 
that UNC is an important aspect of the story of the life of our state. It's been a big institution here since it was made by the Continental Congress. And when people fight over statues or days to celebrate or people to honor or dishonor or remember or forget, what they're fighting over is really the story of this place and what's important to it, which means the story of you and the story of our state. Because story is a big deal, and we all get that. All of us live out of a story. The New Testament scholar Richard Leischer said that we're all characters looking for a plot. You ever feel that? Like you're this character looking for a plot? I want to suggest to you that what Paul is doing here in Philippians is really important for us tonight. Because what he's doing is he's helping Christians... (laughs) We need new mic stands. (laughs) He's helping Christians who are living in this kind of divided, self-asserting community. And he's doing so by saying, take a step back and answer the question of what story do you live in? What story do you live in? And he's giving them a plot to hang their story on. He's giving them the plot of Jesus. Because it's only when you know your story and what story you're in that you can start to answer the questions of what should I do? How should I live? Who am I really? Our problem comes because we were made to live in a certain sort of story, and that story is not about us. It's about God and the people around us. But when we live in a story that's centered on us, we wreck ourselves. I had an encounter with this a few years ago. I got an email from this guy who's a senior here at UNC, and it was an email that I've gotten so many of these just like this, where it's like, hey, can we talk? (laughs) <laughs> all right, yeah, sure. I have no idea what y'all mean when you say, can we talk? Um, and he, he wanted to go and talk and sit, and I was like, all right, let's go do this. And so we go out to the union at the end of just a warm September day, and this guy, he was a senior, about to graduate, and he was kind of like one of the It Carolina guys. He was tall, he was good looking, he was dating a really beautiful young woman, he was a leader in his fraternity. He was brilliant. He basically taught himself Chinese, and he was killing it. I mean, he was a senior, and he'd already won a major scholarship. Not quite the roads, but pretty close. And in a lot of ways, he'd made it. Like, pretty much all the rungs of the ladder that you would want to climb at Carolina, he had climbed those things and looked good doing it. But as we sat out in front of the union on this warm September day, he looked at me with this kind of sad, betrayed look in his eyes. He said, why, if I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing, do I still feel so empty? And he ran me down through the list of stuff that he'd done and was involved in and that he was doing. And I looked at him and I just said, because at the end of the day, you're doing all these things for yourself. This story was really about him. And he worked and worked and worked and just twined himself around himself And he felt miserable. And what I want to ask is that when you're living in a bad story and you're feeling how bad it is, do you know what the only cure is? To get a new story. So I just want to ask uh, three questions tonight of Philippians 2 here. I'm going to say, what is Jesus' story? How does the story flip our story? And how does the story flip our community? What's Jesus' story? How does the story flip our story? And how does the story flip our community? 
So what? What is what's Jesus' story? Look at verse 6 here. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus had all the glory, all the power of God, because from forever he had been God. But what Paul says here is that he didn't consider his power and his glory something to be grasped, something to be held on to. What that word is really tied to is, in Greek, it's the word that's tied to the way that people used to pay soldiers. The idea is that Jesus had something coming to him. He had his rights, and it was owed to him. And they were precious because they were his being in the form of God. And yet he doesn't grasp them or hold on to them. Look, we prep and we preen in front of a mirror before we go out. We scramble to buy designer clothes and humble brag about how busy we are because busyness is significance. We don't use these words about ourselves very much, but we are grasping for glory and honor. Just a little bit of swagger. And if we get a morsel of it, we're going to cling to it. But Jesus, from all eternity, has burned with eternal light and glory and power. And he does the unthinkable. He let it go. He doesn't grasp it. Verse 7. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. God became a man, and not just any man. He becomes a servant. He's not an emperor or a king. He doesn't wear nice clothes or live in a palace. Foxes have holes. Birds there have nests. Jesus has nowhere to lay his head. If you'd walked by him in a crowd, you wouldn't have noticed anything unusual or different about him. He would have looked like just any other guy. There's no glow or halo. And part of the tragedy of the gospel story is that God came and dwelled with his people, and they didn't recognize him. Because there's nothing different about him from his outward appearance. And if we'd been there, we wouldn't have seen anything different either. Jesus does nothing for himself throughout his life. He takes on the role of a servant. When he's hungry, he doesn't turn stones into bread. He's an incredible leader. He doesn't have any official position, though. He's brilliant, but he never writes a book. He's born to a peasant woman outside of marriage. His parents fled as refugees to Egypt. On the night when he's about to be betrayed and executed, he's on his knees washing the filth and the grime off his disciples' feet. He's so poor, he has to be buried in a borrowed tomb. His death isn't even his. It's sacrificial. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus doesn't just die, he dies on a cross. And ancient people just could not wrap their heads around this. It was the most nutso, not seeker-friendly thing that you could say. That being a servant was the worst position in society that a person could have. And dying on a cross was the absolute worst death that someone could die. There's really not like a modern equivalent to it. I mean, to combine both the shame of the cross and the terror of death on a cross is just something, thankfully, we don't have in the modern day. But to be beaten within an inch of your life, stripped naked, nailed to a piece of wood, where you're hoisted up in front of the community, where they're going to throw rocks at you and spit on you and curse you in your nakedness as you slowly suffocate under the weight of your own body, is the worst public shame you can endure and the most painful thing that you can endure. The cross is as bad as it gets. 
But listen to this. Therefore, because he was a servant, because he died on the cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. That is not in spite of Jesus being a servant. It is not in spite of Jesus dying on the cross, but because of it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And to be honest, it's just not what you would expect. It's not what anyone expected. It doesn't seem like plan A. It just totally flips our expectations of who God is and what he's like. And because Jesus is both fully God and fully human, he flips our expectations of what people should be like too. What you and I should be like. He just flips them. I can remember being like a six-year-old boy and trying to wrestle my dad. And I was the oldest of three brothers, and my dad was a a former Marine. He'd fought in Vietnam. And so our house was just like awash in testosterone. And we were all the time like wrestling and fighting and hitting each other, and dad was in the middle of it. And we were always just like after him and trying to hold him and pin him and flip him and wrestle him. And we could never do it. But And I thought when I was six, of course I can't flip dad. I mean, he's dad. He's huge. But I'm getting older and stronger, and he's getting older and weaker. And at some point, those two are going to cross, and I'm going to like pin him and wrestle him and beat him and flip him. And I kept expecting this to happen throughout the years. And finally, I got to be like 18 or 19 years old, and he was, I think, probably 60, 61 at this point. And I had been working on a ton. I, I literally... My first semester of college, I worked at like 12 hours a week. I would, it was just so, so much. And so unnecessary, too. It was ridiculous. But I thought that when I got home, I would finally be able to, like, you know, wrestle my dad and pin him. I was finally, like, in peak form. And <laughs> that was as good as it got. <laughs> and I, I remember surprising him. I came up and I just grabbed him and just try to flip him and hold him down, and he had no idea this was coming, and he takes me and just flips me around and just throws me on my back, and I'm just like, Dad, <laughs> why can't I flip you? And it's one of those things that I guess, if you don't ask your parents the specific questions, some things about their life just never come out. And I know that he'd been a, like a Marine, being in Vietnam, and as I'm on the floor and he's looking down at my face, he's like, well, it's because... I tried out for the 1976 Olympic team in judo, and they took the top three guys, and I placed fourth. And so, like, you know, happy accident. I met your mom because of it, and you're here, but you're never going to flip me. (laughs) And I gave up. (laughs) Look, the gospel, no matter how much you try to wrestle with it, fight it, argue with it, yell at you, yell at it, Try to get around it. It always just flips your expectations of what you're supposed to be. And of who God is. And where your life is supposed to go. That if you're here and you're a Christian, and I don't expect everyone here to be a Christian. If you're not, I'm glad that you are here with us. I hope you feel welcome. But if you are here and you're a Christian, then the central goal of your life is to become like Jesus. And this story just flips our expectations of what that is supposed to look like. I mean, how does this flip our story? I mean, you always want to imitate the next person up as you climb the ladder, right? Like, I mean, to go back to Steve Stokes, 
he would all dad would always tell me, you know, you want to wear what the boss is wearing because that's the guy that you want to be in the office. Look, you want to imitate as you climb up the ladder, but Paul is saying if you actually want to go up and be like the most perfect human being or go up really high and actually be like God, then the way you've got to imitate is down. And you've got to follow him on the way to the cross. Like stepping into Jesus' story means stepping out of the way that Jesus walked through life. I mean, how do you primarily think of yourself? Like, what's your identity? Like, is it in your race? Like, white, black, Asian, Latino? Your class? Like, rich or poor? Like, what got you into Carolina? How smart you are? How athletic you are? Like, what's the primary way you think about yourself? Do you ever think of yourself as a servant? Did you know that if God became a servant for you, then he's bound you into service to everyone for whom he has died? That his love turns us into servants of one another. And that sounds so scary to us, but because everything around us is about freedom to do what we want to do, but you're always going to be a servant to something. You serve what people think of you. You serve what you hope is your future. That just because you wear the chains on the inside doesn't mean that you're free. Everything else is lying to you and saying, if you follow me, then you won't be a slave. But you know that's not true. You feel that all the time. If you follow beauty, you're a slave to how you look. If you follow people's approval, you're a slave to others' opinions. If you say, forget it, I'm just going to be my own person. I'm going to dress how I want to dress. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then I'll be free. Well, then you're just going to be a slave to what you think about you. Only Jesus is honest enough to say, you will always have a master. And the issue is not freedom versus slavery. The issue is what sort of slavery will actually bring the freedom and the glory that you crave. What the gospel is saying is that other forms of slavery offer glory. But only through Christ's slavery do we receive and actually have for ourselves true glory. I mean, have you ever wondered if the reason why you're so frustrated and anxious all the time, like what that is? I want to suggest to you that it's not that you've got a boy problem or a school problem or a problem with your friends. But the reason that you're so frustrated is that you've got a slavery problem. That you're enslaved to all these masters who make all these demands upon your life. Like, do everything all the time. Make it look effortless. Walk through life and never struggle. Like, all these masters are yelling at you, and you wonder why you're tired. And you're anxious. It's because you're enslaved. And you're trying to please all these different masters. And to that, Jesus says... Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That he is a master in whose service is joy and true freedom. What does the story of Jesus say about how you're supposed to live your life? It says, become like Jesus. Ooh, what's becoming like Jesus? It's becoming like a human being. Did you know that Jesus rested when he got tired? 
Like, he's surrounded by people, mobbed by people. He has the power to heal and do miracles, and all these people are coming to him. And he gets tired. And even though all these people are still here, he shut it down and he would rest. Which means that for you to become a human being means that you would rest. Jesus was radical. I mean, he was crazy radical. And he was super obedient at the same time. Why? Because he said, my food and drink is to do the will of my Father in heaven. Well, I mean, that's Jesus. Like, he's super spiritual. He's divine. Okay, true. But he's also fully human. Which means that if the will of God is as essential to your life as eating and drinking good food and good drink, that if you were to do that, it would make you more human and not less. It would be your greatest pleasure. Do you really want to be a spiritual person? Being a spiritual person is not knowing all the answers about God and life and then living this kind of very distant, on-the-mountaintop guru experience. To be a spiritual person is to know God through the story of Jesus. And then to be a servant to the people and the places that he's put you. Like Carolina. Like RUF. Like your classes. Like your hall. Have this mind. Have this attitude towards your power and your privilege, which is yours in Jesus. Okay, like, how do I do that? Paul says to have this thing that I already have. I don't know what that is, and I don't know how to use it. Like, if I'm a character looking for a plot, how do I find my plot? What Paul is saying here is that the answer is the cross. That it was because of Jesus' self-giving love on the cross that he's so exalted. It's this defining moment of his life. It's what defines his life and his story. And to live into the story, to have this mind, is to have your life defined by the cross as well. Look, you can try and live at the Jesus story and be super moral by your own strength and power. You can try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go out and save the world. But if you don't see yourself as living under his acceptance, as this enemy that he's prayed for and died for, then as far as selfless giving is concerned, your works are for nothing. Because you'll always be working for yourself. To gain the approval or the admiration of others. To make the people who show up kind of in the background of your Instagram pics kind of a prop for how awesome you are. Or to use the people that are there so you finally feel like you matter. And from the outside, it might look like you're being selfless, but it'll always be about you. It'll always just be about the people that... It'll always never be about the people that you're serving. But to have your life defined by Jesus' life means that all the acceptance and the love and the glory that you crave is already yours as this free gift. You can't earn more approval. You can serve without bragging to people. You can rest when you're tired, even if there's more to do, because you're free from trying to earn anything. And so you can step off the treadmill of having to prove yourself. That to receive the story of Jesus and to wrap your life around his life is to receive his mind. How would you know that this is happening? How would you know this is happening in your life? You will know that you have this mind when you are treated as a servant and it's your joy. That it's your joy when you serve and people treat you as a servant. That's when you know that you're killing it and you're winning at life. Okay, how does this shape, shape us as a community? What changes our life together when we live in this story? Think about the way that you try to get a grip on your life and try to manage your life or kind of structure your life. Like, I'm a big fan of intentionality, plans, goals, kind of creating infrastructure. 
And there's a way that can be prone to kind of mess that up. Like we can take these sort of big boxes for our lives, like over here, here's my school box, and it's where I put my grades and my papers and my reading and my syllabi and my internship. And then here's my friend box, like here's the people that I really connect with and love to spend time with, and they kind of spur me on, and I want to be like them, and they kind of want to be like me. Here's my uh, take care of my body box, like new year, new you. Like I'm going to start lifting my weights, start running, I'm going to do cardio kickboxing. Start dabbling in some green salad when I go to the little or instead of always hitting the Chick-fil-A. Just a little something for you, you know. <laughs> Here's my spiritual box. Like, this is the semester that I finally get my act together and, like, read the Bible and go to church. And we have all these boxes. And what we can want is this better work-life balance and to put things in kind of the right ratio. And what I really need to do is get my ducks in a row and bring some equilibrium to my life. And what that can end up being is this approach to living, which is just a continuation of the same old story. It's about you. And the question that Paul wants us to ask is, boxes aside, is that approach to life in line with the story of Jesus? The more controlling I get about the boxes... And again, all for plans, intentionality, goals, boundaries. But the more protective that I get about the different boxes, the more that the needs of the people around me become this nuisance. And the overwhelming numbers of people out there who don't know Jesus, or who are lonely, or broken, or need something from me become this nuisance. And an obstacle to my boxes being the way that I kind of want them to be. And it's as if Paul is saying... You know, I bet that God's will for this community is something a lot more glorious and a lot more beautiful than your boxes getting balanced the way that you want them to be balanced. But maybe what that's going to look like is that you're going to have to suffer more than you thought you were. Or that people are going to come into your life that you would not naturally ever hang out with and you're going to actually have to serve them and be with them. And there's going to be a thing inside of you that says, do not lay down your life for these people. Do not serve them. And it will rear its head. But God wants you to buy in and follow him and become a servant and take up a cross and you're going to lay down your life. And there's going to be more joy and more life, more glory in that than you would have dreamed of. And that will not come through a bigger and better box. That will become because the Lord Jesus will take what is his and give it to you. His approach to life, his very story, and hand that to you. And on the front end, that will seem like servanthood and the death of ambition. In reality, that will be glory and freedom. Can we as a community say, more than boxes being balanced... And having fun and reaching out to people and doing group events well, which are all things that would be awesome if those went off without a hitch. But more than those things, what we need at rock bottom is to soak up the story of Jesus and to serve one another. That life and death for us is doing the story of Jesus together. And that is true whether you have known and believed this stuff for as long as you can remember or you have no idea how you wound up here tonight. 
that life and death for us is doing the story of Jesus together and serving one another. And so I want to end with this. I heard a story, I guess a little while ago now, but it was uh, an interview with a guy named Shabazz Badi. And he has a funny name because he's a man who was born in Pakistan, a very different country than ours. And he was high up in the government in Pakistan, and his job was in a, a cabinet-level position where he's the minister of minorities, which is basically this, that Shabazz body is a Catholic Christian, and he represents the Christians and all the other religious minorities in Pakistan, and he starts to fight in Pakistan against the country's anti-blasphemy laws. Because these laws have been used against religious minorities, like Christians or Hindus or Buddhists, to kind of go through a kangaroo court with some of those religious minorities and take their property and kill these people, kind of ethnically cleanse some folks out of villages. And Shabazz body said, that is not right. And I'm going to do something about it. And along the way, he starts to get death threats. And not just like a few, but thousands of death threats. And not just from like randos out there, but from people like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Like people that you know will carry through when they give you a death threat. And there's this BBC interview with him where the interviewer is asking him about these, these death threats. And he says, you know, the forces of violence, these militants, they want to kill me when I'm leading the charge against these anti-blasphemy laws. And when I'm speaking for the oppressed and the marginalized and persecuted Christians and other minorities in the country. That these groups are threatening me. But, and he says this to the BBC, which is incredible. But he said, I want to share that I believe in Jesus Christ, who has given his own life for us. And I know what is the meaning of the cross. I'm following the cross. And I'm ready to die for this cause. I am living for the community of suffering people, and I will die to defend their rights. And not many weeks after that, Shabazz left his house early one morning, and he asked for bulletproof cars, he asked for armed security. He's a top-level cabinet member in the Pakistan government. He got none of it. He has a driver who picks him up to go to work. And he gets picked up, and they go to work, and along the way, these guys on motorcycles with shawls wrapped over their faces and machine guns pull the driver over, pull the driver out, and they kill Shabazz. Look, y'all, I am just a white guy in a J. Crew pullover and jeans. I have not lost a lot to follow Jesus. Like, in a lot of ways, the life that I live does not align with the life and the story of Jesus. But you hear a story like Shabbat's body, where this guy gives up you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to care for and defend the persecuted and suffering people. Of, who are Christians, and some who are not. And you have to ask yourself, what does he get that I don't get? What does he get that we need? I would say that it was the way that he understood his life in connection with Jesus' life. That to know that Jesus has given his life for you is to know that you're called to give your life and serve those around you. And that is your calling and it is your glory. And that's my hope for us tonight. That we become servants who love one another in community. Amen.
Let me pray for us. Father, you love us so much. You've given us everything in your son, Jesus. Lord, help the hurting to know his love. Help those who don't know him yet to know his truth. Lord, help those who do know him to walk his way. Lord, be with us, guide us, teach us to serve one another as we see the way that you serve us in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.